Chapter 2, Personal Crisis Standing still left an opening for the void to reach Rita's heart. Three years after the expected passing of her father, it still shook her signature equanimity. Memories of the funeral and the feeling of loss opened up the hole she experienced now and again. Shifting from the memories of her loss, Rita's thoughts then scanned to her first forum meeting after the funeral. From the time she assumed the reins of best and from the encouragement of her father, she joined the Global Leaders Organization. Her favorite part of GLOW was her forum experience. With nine other presidents and CEOs around the table, their monthly forum meetings were a leadership reset button. Over the years, she found Optios could reveal better ways to lead her company. She often wondered why more leaders did not join leader-to-leader networks like that at GLOW. Her decision to participate would eventually lead to many significant wins, including a better door for her company's healthcare solutions. They named their forum Optios, which is the Latin term for choice. Peer learning is an accelerated by exchanges between real-life corporate and business-of-life interchange. Forums have a rotating moderator selected from the group, and this year a level-headed practical thinking leader, Darius, was in charge. Darius followed protocol and led the group in a round of five-minute updates followed by the needs and leads portion of the program. Darius watched for themes that were arising from the forum updates that he could add to the parking lot for later discussion. As each member spoke about business and personal highlights and low points from the last month, with confidentiality as a cornerstone of Optios's forum, the updates were direct and forthright. During the updates today, the moderator noted a common concern about rising healthcare costs. As a result, Darius suggested they set aside 60 minutes at the end of their meeting for an open discussion about this topic. Everyone seemed to be dealing with the same issue, and it would serve all of the leaders to bring it more out into the open. But the first presentation today was Rita's sharing her experience, thoughts, and feelings regarding the recent passing of her father. It was an issue that the Optios group encouraged Rita to share as she went through her father's death and funeral. She was surprised how significantly the weight was lifted from her heart and her spirits were rallied as she spoke fondly of her dad and his passing to the group. The power of a forum is never fully understood until one has experienced it firsthand. The personal and professional bond, especially in the confidential setting, with leaders who have precious few options to vent and explore issues given their view from the top is an exceptional privilege. Rita ultimately arrived at the end of her 20 minutes with each member expressing their caring thoughts and words of empathy, having experienced similar losses. It was time for one of the Optios Forum members to present. Today's formal presentation was delivered by Jason, who ran a furniture import business that was constantly seeing their sales and margins shrink. His leadership team was testing out an emerging market for made-in-the-USA furniture in coal mining towns. With facilities that could be repurposed, a workforce eager to keep working, Chamber of Commerce desperate for an injection of hope, it was clear they had a promising opportunity. 
When Jason covered the numbers that he and his leadership team pulled together, everyone took note of a nagging sticking point. The employees desperately needed health care benefits, but the cost of the benefits would negate nearly 40% of steady-state profits and greatly increase the risk of financial failure in the first two years. Healthcare alone would be the greatest block for bringing dozens of communities back to life and a sustainable future. Each forum member quizzed Jason on the business plan, but the solution for the healthcare cost issue escaped all of them. No one had a viable solution to offer. When it was time for the parking lot, it was like horses in the starting gate moments before the metal bars swing open. The conversation about healthcare affecting margin and employee well being was thick in their minds. First up was Kelly, the CEO of Sabini Capital, which is a big conscious capitalism company. Kelly was always talking about how great they are for their employees. Kelly went on to talk about their health care plan. We're fully insured, but we just got a 20% increase, so we looked at how we could become partially or fully self-insured. But instead, we stayed with our current plan. We didn't want to risk not knowing what we would have to pay under a self-insured plan. Our broker figured out a way for us to reduce the loss to 15% per year by raising the deductibles for each employee. Then we raised the premium contribution of each employee to make up the remainder of the 15%. Honestly, we kept our costs flat by transferring the costs onto our employees, which is tearing me up. Here we are trying to do the right thing by our customers and vendors and to build stronger, better communities. But we understand that this decision is a huge step backwards, placing greater financial strain on our employees. But what choice do we have? Kelly went on to say, we spent $6 million on healthcare last year. Basically, we just shifted a burden of $900,000 onto our 560 employees. That's over $1,600 per person. Every one of our employees knows we espouse that our conscious capitalism culture will improve their lives, but this feels like a big step backwards. Somehow, we must find a better way. The forum model is designed for each leader to take turns, but at times it makes sense to just adjust protocol and interrupt the flow with a yes or no question. Kelly looked from her update form to the group and point-blank asked them, how many of us passed on cost of health care from your bottom line to your employees last year? Every hand raised as they looked around the room. Nothing was said, but the issue was clear. Kelly nodded. We all have a health care cost problem, not just in this room, but every corporation in our system as well. She put down her papers and said, There was a Wall Street article I read last week that reported, in the United States, what we see is that the average deductible is up in the $1,500 to $5,000 range, but the average American doesn't have $400 for unexpected expenses in their bank account. This means our employees who are paying monthly premiums for coverage are functionally uninsured. They're carrying around a medical card thinking that they're covered, but will have to decide whether to pay for food, mortgage, electricity, or gas if they have to use that insurance. It feels like such a travesty, and we're propagating it when we offer our current benefits. 
Also, the Wall Street Journal reported that medical debt is the leading cause of bankruptcy for American families. The financial hardship for medical bills is simply unacceptable. The timer went off and Kelly let that truth hang in the air. They all knew this wasn't an isolated example. It was a universal truth in the United States. Next up was Brian, who carried on the theme of healthcare and used his time to describe a situation that was folding inside his company. I'm for any entrepreneur or businessman's right to make a profit, but I really have an issue with what's happened to three of my employees in the last few months. It has to do with these emergency room urgent care centers that are popping up on every corner. What happened to the three separate employees of mine, they all went to one of these new centers. And picture this, when you walk in, the receptionist triages your problem to see if they should direct you into the emergency room side of their business. If they can't, they'll have you go to the urgent care exam rooms. If they get you into the ER side, they can bill inflated costs. Often, they bill 10 times what Medicare has determined to be a fair price for their care. At first, I thought the No Surprises Act had eliminated these massive ER bills, but I spoke to my broker who explained that the No Surprises Act applies only to the out-of-network bills and that in-network emergency bills are still quite high. Because hospitals have to treat the uninsured in emergencies, they use that as an excuse to convince insurance companies to pay higher rates for emergency care than for elective care. My broker assured me that the good news is that before the No Surprises Act, that ER bill would have been 30 times the Medicare rate. My executive assistant, Rohan, popped into an urgent care facility down the street from her. It turns out when the receptionist asked her if she had problems swallowing or breathing, she answered that she did, and this was their ticket to put her on the ER side. At the end of the exam and testing, it turned out she had strep throat. They coded it as a high-severity visit. Rohan looked at the discharge notes on the way out and said she didn't think of herself as severely ill. The discharge rep replied, If we don't code at this level, your insurance company might not pay for it. Not knowing what the charge would be, Rohan went along with it. You can imagine how upset she was when a bill for $6,000 showed up in her mail for a 30-minute visit and a diagnosis of strep throat. How can they do that legally, asked Kelly, unable to hold in her disdain for this form of gouging. Well, Brian continued, it gets worse. The game they're playing is to bill both the patient and the insurance company. Not surprisingly, Rohan was shocked at the $6,000 bill, which chewed up her deductible and then hit her with a copay, leaving her to pay about $4,500 out of pocket. She couldn't pay that much. So the ER sent her to collections. After weeks of stress and thinking she was going to have her credit destroyed, Rohan was relieved when the collections department offered to settle for a mere $600, plus the insurance payment of $1,000 that they received. At the end of the day, the urgent care center gets $1,600 for a $170 strep throat test. Rohan goes through emotional hell, and our insurance premiums go up every year, hurting every employee in our company. I wonder if the CEO of the insurance companies and urgent ER care centers are conscious of how they're undermining the success of average people 
in our companies. I think it's one thing to pay for value and quality, but I think this is way out of bounds. A vein in Brian's forehead would pop out whenever he was stressed out, and right now it was practically casting a shadow. He took a breath and went on. They're screwing people, and I want it to stop. My people work hard and deserve a hell of a lot better than this. Next up, Shan, a normally jovial person with a quick laugh, jumped into a different angle on the broken system. Shan leads a venture capital firm that mostly focuses on fintech, but had some insight he felt would benefit his fellow forum members. I feel like we're playing a game of healthcare dogpile, Shan said, half in jest. Get this, our employees have been complaining about the costs of their medicines, and we noticed our prescription costs were going through the roof. It turns out that the reason is that companies often backed by private equity are buying up the rights to produce certain generic drugs. One of our employees took a medication that cost them $4 a month two years ago. Last year, it was $4 a pill, and now it's $30 a pill. We're talking about a twice-a-day medication where the cost to my employee is now out of reach. She told us the other day she'd stop taking her medicine. She knows her life may be shortened, but she has no choice. Pay the mortgage, food, and gas for her and her kids or take her medications. My HR director came to me and asked if there was anything we could do. When I looked into it, we realized that not taking medications is happening over 50% of the time a prescription is written to one of our employees. This kind of financial toxicity in healthcare kills over 125,000 people annually, causes 10% of hospitalization, and costs over $100 billion every year in the United States. In my company, it's happening more and more because my employees cannot afford their medications and I haven't figured out what to do to help them. With games like this increasing the cost of our generic drugs and all of the new specialty drugs coming onto the market, our employees are getting caught in the middle. My broker said pharmacy, pharmacy benefit companies, and insurance companies have the most powerful lobbies in Washington and are continually finding ways to block change to help the average employee or to allow companies like ours to do anything about it. So all he can come up with to manage this is to pass the cost onto our employees because we can't or don't want to absorb it. I know this is not my fault, but somehow it just makes me feel dirty and like a lousy leader. There has to be something I can do. Sean paused and looked around the room. Despite the fact that each member of the forum was expected to have all the answers when it came to issues at work, there were no answers on the faces of those sitting around the table. Y'all know the EpiPen story, right? asked Sean, showing his Texas roots. When I was looking into these issues, I found the story. You could buy an EpiPen for $106 in 2004. Mylan, the manufacturer, drove the price up to $700 over the next few years, and many people died because they had an allergic reaction and no medication. Finally, after years of complaints and people dying, the U.S. Justice Department stepped in and reached a settlement with Mylan for $465 million. Today, you can buy a generic EpiPen from a different manufacturer for $110. You wonder if at some point, if this can happen or will happen, for all of our life-saving medications. You get the feeling this would have already happened if the pockets in Washington's were not lined with money from the lobbies. 
Shan's time was up, and the moderator turned to Denise. Denise was the CEO of Fur Baby Hotels, a franchise of pet care facilities across the United States. I interviewed for the COO position at CBF Care Life Pharmacies a few years ago. While doing my due diligence, I found something very unsettling. There can be a generic drug that costs $6 per month or the same branded drug for $600 a month. And pharmacies get to keep 40% of the revenue through a number of different rebates, incentives, marketing fees, and so forth. By state law, the pharmacist cannot tell a customer there's a $6 alternative unless they specifically ask if there's a less expensive way to get the drug. On the other hand, if the customer comes in and says, I'm a cash payer, instead of saying, I have insurance, the price goes down from the insurance company price of three, four, or $500 per month to $50 a month for the same medication. After I passed on working at CBF Care Life, I found out that this was a significant cause in the surprise billings. I'm much happier being in business where we don't optimize profits on the back of the American middle class. Denise scanned the room and instinctively knew a little good news was in order. She went on to give more insight into her franchise's perspective in the healthcare world. We go to an annual convention of national franchises every year. The big guys like Subway and McDonald's attend, but the biggest value is the idea exchange between the smaller franchises like ours. There was a Starbucks story that caught my attention. It turns out at the Seattle Starbucks stores, baristas were experiencing a lot of low back pain. They'd go to the doctor, get sent for x-rays, come back in for a follow-up appointment several days later, and were usually sent for six weeks of physical therapy. The average time Starbucks lost a barista was 12 weeks. During this time, Starbucks had to bring in someone else, less well-trained, and equally or more expensive. To solve this, Starbucks worked with a local doctor's group to create a fast-track lower back pain program, where the barista got into physical therapy within 24 hours, usually followed up by two weeks of therapy, and 85% of the time, the workers were back on the job after that two weeks, saving millions in labor and unnecessary medical costs. The moderator's five-minute timer went off, and Denise leaned back. She realized that their companies were too small to create a program like this, but at least it showed something could be done to address the healthcare tsunami. As per their agenda, the group took a 10-minute break and then dove back into the final presentation by Brian about his corporation possibly going to court over a wrongful dismissal. He'd never experienced anything like this and wanted to get the input from others in the room how they'd handle similar situations. After the meeting, each drove home in an invisible cloud of discontent that the healthcare system in the U.S. was failing them, their businesses, and their families. Even though their role as leaders was to know where to go, they were struggling with what the next best steps should be. The system was broken, dysfunctional, and letting them down. The lack of options and the fact that all of them are struggling felt oppressive. Yet as leaders, they were expected to know what to do. Where could they turn for the answers while instilling confidence in the people who count on them for direction? On the ride home, Rita appreciated having a quiet place to think. She never listened to the radio. This was her chance to let her mind wander. While her Tesla was quietly waiting at a light, her mind was almost making a whirling noise as she pondered a solution for her company. 
The only door being offered for health care led off a financial cliff, and that was not an option.